Well, all right, let's go ahead and get started. Um, we finished up last time with our church and state uh, stuff. I don't know if there's any lingering issues any of you wanted to talk about with that. Certainly we can. If you don't have any questions or anything you want to talk about with that, then we'll just push through to a new topic. I see none. Okay, good deal. We've answered everything. So as we passed around that uh, sheet to figure out what uh, people wanted to look at the most, there was a tie for first place. So uh, we're going to go with what you guys voted on as churchless Christianity. This idea that uh, you could be a Christian without necessarily being part of any particular church. Now the CTCR, like we said, put out a document about this kind of thing. Um, we're only going to kind of touch a little bit on the document because it's a really, really short document. And we're going to kind of use it because they're talking primarily about an evangelism movement, as it turns out, um, towards Islam. Uh, this growing belief since the 1910s that a good way to convert Muslims in majority Muslim countries was to try to help them be Christian without adopting any of the cultural parts of Christianity so they wouldn't be ostracized by their Muslim neighbors or persecuted or things like that. In fact, not even necessarily using words or names like Jesus or baptism or things like that so that they could just be um, moving toward Jesus while remaining basically functionally Muslim in almost every other thing they said, did, and thought. But uh, the document notes, <clears throat> notes that that phenomenon of churchless Christianity is pretty present Outside of evangelism to Muslims, it's pretty present in our own culture in a lot of different ways. And that's what we're really going to focus on, simply because I don't know if too many of you happen to know too many Muslims, and certainly none in a Muslim-majority country. <laughs> just happens to be an area where there aren't very many thriving Muslim communities. So we won't worry too much about that, because it just isn't relevant to you guys. What we'll talk about is the the underlying idea there that you could be a Christian without a church. And in fact, you've probably become aware that that's a growing sensibility among a lot of Christians in America. It's not a secret that membership in churches is down, as well as attendance in churches being down. Um, there are still quite a few people, the vast majority of Americans, still identify both as Christian, and a large number of those still identify as a Christian of a particular tradition, Lutheran, Catholic, uh, Baptist, Pentecostal, whatever. But it doesn't mean that they actively practice their religion in terms of going to church. There's a huge sensibility that if I have a personal relationship with Jesus, I believe in him, I have faith, I don't necessarily need to go to Sunday worship, get together with all these other believers, so on and so forth. Are you aware of that kind of growing phenomenon? Definitely. Some of you probably have that experience in your own families to a certain degree. A lot of families do, and it's a struggle with a lot of families. Parents trying to wonder, how do we get my kids to go to church? And it is not really seeming to the kids to be that important of an issue, right? So let's talk about this. Um, first of all, this question, is it even possible, or rather, do we really need to be part of the church to be Christian? Can't I just have my faith in Jesus and that be enough? 
Actually, let me back up a step before I go there. What do you think are some reasons Christians that you know um, have that mentality, that I don't necessarily need church to be Christian? Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of people think that. But what are the reasons you th that you think they would give for saying, I don't really need to go to church, either very often or at all? Well, I, I think, you know, and I, I don't... I think they probably think, well, yeah, I, I know God created, you know, everything, and I believe in God, and so why do I need to go to church? So faith, liter just faith is sufficient. I have faith. What else do I need kind of idea? Yeah. Any other thoughts out there? That's certainly one of them I've come across. Some people are, are afraid that they might, uh, people of the church might want them to get involved by doing different things and they don't want to do that or some people just don't want to get up on Sunday morning and have to do that and it, they just... Okay, so baggage that comes with being part of the church, you might say. If I, if I come to church, they won't just let me come to church. I'll have to do all this other stuff that I don't necessarily have any interest in and I don't want to be part of this whole bigger institutional machinery, kind of. And there's, there's some people that we knew of that didn't want to go to church because they knew they'd ask for money. Right, and uh, there's another objection I've, I've personally heard people give. All the church show at once is just you giving them their money. That's all it's about is money, money, money. That's what we've heard. Right, it's not about Christian. It's just a glorified uh, for-profit scheme masquerading as a non-profit religious thing. <laughs> Any others that you've heard? I've heard people say, well, they're just a bunch of hypocrites at church anyhow because I know what they do when they're not in church. Okay, so the idea that uh, church is just a bunch of hypocrites. They pretend to be really religious, righteous people, but we know that uh, from personal experience, they aren't particular. I'm going to write these down, some of these down, just so we don't forget them, so we can circle that. So uh, one of them, faith is enough. Don't want to get so involved. Asking for too much money. And uh, you had said, what was the last one? Hypocrites. Full of hypocrites. I've also heard one saved, always saved, so... Alright, okay, sure. Saved anyway, so it, yeah. won't, it won't benefit me anyway. Yeah. I'm saved. Yeah. No benefit to going. So I already have salvation. I don't need anything else. Kind of like I have faith. That's enough. But a little different almost in the sense that nothing could possibly damage me anyway. So there's nothing I could get out of it. Um, anything else that you guys want to throw out? You don't have to. I'm just curious if you have anything you want to throw out. I don't, I've heard, I don't know if this goes with any of them, but I've, I've heard people say, well, I know I go out in the woods and see nature. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Man, you know, I, I know there's a God. Spiritual, we'll call it spiritual fulfillment elsewhere. If I see that, that's all I need. Right. I feel closer to God out in my fishing boat. That was a favorite up in Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes. I feel closer to God out in my fishing boat in the grandeur of nature than I do sitting in a pew listening to uh, maybe a not-so-interesting sermon. And uh, no doubt, sometimes sermons just aren't that interesting. <laughs> well, I, I know what <laughs> fishermen can think and say while they're out there, too. So. <laughs> if we're fishing alone. <laughs> oh. All right, anything else that you guys want to throw out? I don't want to cut you off early. All right, I mean, that's a pretty good list. That covers probably most, a lot of the big ones that I've personally heard, because 
I obviously try to go and visit members on the church roster who don't come to church. By the way, um, if you were to take a guess of the percentage of members who are regular across the board in most Lutheran congregations, what would you say is the percentage of people who are there almost every week? 25%. Okay, 25%. Any other guesses? 50. A little pessimistic. 50? Okay, good. Half. Half sounds like, yeah, you know, it's at least um, from every pastor I've talked to and the congregations I've known and from study, from what uh, statistics you hear through the, uh, organ, the LCMS's official statistics, it's probably around the range of anywhere from 30 to 35 percent. Only around a third of members of any given congregation are likely to be highly or regularly active in the sense of coming to church every week or most weeks. Probably somewhere in the realm of two-thirds are what you might call semi-active. That is to say, they'll come once in a while. However, we'll even count the Christmas and Easter Christians. The pastors like to call them the C&E Christians. (laughs) We're there for Christmas, we're there for Easter. And then, of course, you probably have another... uh, anywhere from a third to a quarter, who just don't come and probably haven't come for many years and have no intention of ever coming again. Maybe because they've moved away and they don't even live in the area, um, but we just never get them off the roster for whatever reason, or just because they just never will come and they don't, haven't since you possibly confirmation, goodbye, we'll never see you again, or uh, something else happens. So, There's even in congregations where you have people formally on the roster, you have this growing phenomenon of people. And it's not like they'll say, I don't believe in God anymore when you happen to be able to have a conversation with them. Usually it's kind of hard to get a conversation with the inactives. But usually it's not like, I don't believe in that stuff anymore. It's usually, oh, I believe. But for whatever, all kinds of different reasons, two other reasons I hear to add to this. They won't say it quite like this, but... uh, They'll always give reasons that say there's something more important going on um, is one of the big reasons I often hear uh, for going. And uh, so, but usually we get one of these kinds of reasons. Either I don't really necessarily see the need to go to church because my faith is enough, um, because uh, I've got my spiritual fulfillment elsewhere so far, so thanks, Pastor. Don't take me off the membership roster. (laughs) But... uh, I don't don't count on me coming to church anytime soon. Um, what's that? What were you saying? It's, it's, don't take me off the membership rolls because I want to be buried out there. Well, yeah, there's there's the whole cemetery issue of uh, I, I want to be I have a good cheap solid place to be buried where my family was buried and I got that family connection, but uh, thanks but no thanks. Um, or I've heard again. People say, well, they always ask for money for so much, and that just finally turned me off, and all kinds of different things. But point being, this idea that you can be, that their their mentality is almost always, in terms of my Christian faith, I'm good. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm in a good, strong relationship with my Lord and my Savior. I'm just not coming to church. And again, there's the mentality. It's okay for me to be a Christian and not have church. And so that, whatever the reasons they give, and the, and I say that, the reasons that you hear, and also the statistics I point out to say, this is a problem in almost every congregation, and a large problem. 
because there are significant numbers of people who are either rarely attending or never attending who are claiming to be not just Christians, but part of the church. They just don't need the church. Now, the big question, of course, to ask in all of this is how does, let's frame it this way so we don't automatically prejudice the answer, because obviously you know the answer I'm going to say, but rather than ask it in the form of how could they possibly say they're Christian without being part of the church, let's put it this way. How does being a Christian relate to being the church? That's the big question we have to answer when we're uh, trying to think through, first of all, is it possible to be a Christian without being part of the church? Second, is it advisable to be a Christian without being part of the church? And I suppose third, um, is there even a necessary relation between the two so that I can be a Christian perfectly well without ever trying to be part of any particular community of believers? And I think I want to get at this a little more indirectly rather than just go to one verse and say, there's a command from Christ that says you have to be part of the church. Issue settled. Let's move on to the next one. We could do that, but it's very rarely convincing <laughs> to people who are in that position on the one hand. And there's a lot more to it. We don't want to just, what I want to do is show that there is a huge organic relationship between being a Christian and being the church related to um, all of the command, a lot of the commands and promises that Christ gives to his people as his people. So what I passed out isn't really um, our Bible study. This is actually, um, I'm giving you a little insight into what I'm doing. I, I, I only this morning thought, hey, maybe I should use this for our Bible study. This is something I drew up several weeks ago, because obviously we've been through the pandemic. Obviously, we didn't have in-person church for a couple of months. And even when we got back to having church regularly, for a lot of reasons, some understandable, some probably a little less so, there, there was lower attendance, totally. Again, I'm not going to get into whether that was good or right or bad right now. What I'm just saying is that's just the fact that it is. And so ever since then, our numbers have still been a little lower. And every pastor, by the way, is struggling with this question, how do we get people back to the pews? Assuming, of course, that that's a good goal to have. And so this is kind of my own plan that I wrote up to keep myself accountable um, so I could think through more what I want to do and why I want to do it when I start making visits to inactive members in our congregation to try to, first of all, understand why they are staying away. And it's very, very important in all of this to understand people have different reasons for not being part actively of the church. They can range from the legitimate and fair. Well, Pastor, you may not have known this. I'm physically disabled now. I can't actually get to the church. Or um, I have this really bad health condition. Or I'm helping my family members who I'm the only care provider for them on that day and time. Or this is the only job I have. I, I cannot possibly support my family on another job very easily. And it happens to make it work on Sunday. Those are different reasons than, I just don't think it's that important. I'm already saved, what's the big deal? It's more, I possibly may very well wish to go, but I have circumstances that make it very hard, if not impossible, or profoundly unwise for me to take the time that you're offering the time to go and worship. Does that make sense? 
So you want to understand why it is people are not affiliating with the church or don't, because there's a huge range of reasons. And aside from the fact that there might be compelling reasons that our worship schedule as it stands might not make it feasible for that particular person, there are also different reasons that people give that need the word of God applied to them differently. If my objection is, I just got more important things going on, basically saying, I just don't value this regardless of what the Bible says about it, regardless of what Christ says about it, but I'm good, is a very different kind of thing than, say, I was horribly offended or uh, sinned against by either the congregation or people at that congregation. And so I have some issues of uh, a breach in our friendship, our fellowship, our life together. That's a very different kind of problem, right? As is, I'm already saved. I have theological reasons in the Bible I can point to to say there's no need for me to go. All three very different places, and the Word of God needs to be applied to all of them, but it needs to be applied to their specific problems that they're facing and their specific objections. And so first thing you need to do when you're dealing with people in this situation is not assume you know why they aren't coming to church and assume, therefore, I already have my, uh, my uh, verse here to tell you this is why you're wrong. <laughs> Get into church. But listen to their problem and see what actually is going on and whether this is something that needs addressed with God's law, whether it's something that needs addressed with God's gospel, or whether it's something that may even, <laughs> frankly, need the congregation to open up a new worship time slot to make it feasible for them. Make sense? But there's all kinds of different possibilities. So I'm not going to go in detail over my uh, initial plans. That's just for, if you want to look at that, that's, that's your uh, prerogative you can do. That's just for me to, uh, to help clarify in my own mind how I would go about it when I start making these visits and uh, when and what kinds of things I'm probably going to encounter and how to deal with those. But uh, the main part I want you to jump to for our purposes is phase two down here with um, applying God's word. Because um, approaching this from a pastoral and a fellow Christian perspective, our goal is not to say, well, these people are just being idiots for not coming to church I don't care about them. Let's just focus on us. The goal of any good, solid Christian towards one of the other people who claim to be Christian yet don't think they need the church is to help them live more in accord with God's word and hope more deeply in God's word, right? God's word should be the center of who we are and what we do. So I want to focus on applying that word of God to people in those various situations. And so um, the way that I have this set up here, actually skip a little further to resources for applying God's word, is a whole bunch, a series of um, kinds of question and answers that go through certain key passages of scripture to help a person think through their own perspective and their own situation and their own objections to going to church. Assuming, of course, we're not dealing with someone who has a legitimate, I can't physically get there for economic, for familial, for all kinds of reasons, in which case the issue is more, okay, congregation, what can we do to help them worship? Since they want to worship, they're just being prevented. Does that make sense, that little distinction? We're not talking here about that kind of case 
where people are legitimately unable to come to worship at the allotted worship times. Those are important cases, and we should deal with them, and we shouldn't just write off uh, people, say, who have work schedules who interfere by saying, well, work, church is more important than work, which it may well be, but I still have to provide for myself and my family. So maybe you should make it so that they can do both without having a bad conscience. But let's talk about all these other cases that we've talked, where all of these are objections for, ranging from, I don't think church is necessary. That is, faith is enough. Or uh, I'm saved regardless. That is, I have the gospel. I'm already saved. I already have Christ. Why do I need to come to church? What more could it possibly give me? There's that kind of objection. There's also the kind of objection, it's just frankly not that important to me. All kinds of modes of simply saying, I just have higher priorities right now. And then, of course, there's, all, there's the kind that our reconciliation issues of, um, I've been offended or hurt by somebody in the congregation. Those are another class where you need to apply the word of God to. And again, finally, this last class of, I have spiritual fulfillment elsewhere. Most of those, except for the reconciliation one, we're going to come back to the reconciliation one. We're going to bracket them off for right now. We're just going to talk about the people who think, I'm saved, or I have faith, therefore I have all I need, therefore I don't need church. We're going to talk about the people who think, I can get my spiritual fulfillment elsewhere. And we're going to talk about the people who think they're just more important pressing things to go on, whether that means spending time with my family, or whether that means camping, or whether that means just sleeping in a little longer. Um, all of those we could probably lump under the same kind of issue because their basic issue, despite approaching it slightly differently, the basic issue is attendance at church is not necessary to the Christian faith. That's the basic assumption from which all of those objections derive. Does that make sense? If I'm objecting that my faith is enough, I'm assuming church is not necessary for me for salvation. If I'm uh, saying I get my spiritual fulfillment elsewhere, I'm assuming church is not necessary for spiritually fulfilling me. If I'm saying I have more important things going on, I'm assuming church is not necessary for me to live a good, decent, fulfilling life under the God I supposedly believe in. So all of those come from the same basic assumption, which is why we're just going to work through a lot of these kinds of different things. And what I, what I have here is a whole bunch of commands and promises that are given in Scripture that relate to participation in the church. Because if you want to deal with somebody who's not sure what it means to be a Christian or whether you need to be in church to be a Christian, or any other thing related to being a Christian. Going to the specific commands and promises of Scripture is the best and clearest place to go, because now you're leaving them with, okay, here's what the Scripture says. How are you going to respond to that? And then it's not just a matter of, I think, I feel. Now it's a matter of, well, now I have to just take a stand of either I'm going to listen to what Christ clearly is saying here in the Scriptures, or I'm going to make the active decision not to. In which case, now we know exactly where we stand. Make sense? And that's a very good place to be, because now we're removing illusions and helping people get a good lay of the land and make, I guess you'd say, an informed decision that is either patently in line with scriptures or patently unaligned with scriptures. So, again, roundabout. We're not going to simply go to certain verses, which we could right away. Uh, one of the places, I think would be useful to always start, is with the sacraments. 
Because you can say a lot about the Word of God, about how I can read the Bible at home, right? I can uh, turn on, I can watch church on TV perfectly well if I so choose, especially these days. It's everywhere. Heck, our own congregation lets you do it. Um, but the Lord's Supper is something you just have a little harder time doing without being part of an active worshiping community, right? So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. And by the way, if you're ever wondering, how do I talk to somebody who has this uh, situation, a family member, a friend, uh, an erstwhile member who's just kind of disappeared from church, I would recommend this is you could even take some of these ways as ways of approaching them. Not in a confrontational, hey, you haven't been in church in a while. Let's see what the Bible says about that, buddy. But maybe go, you know, I just, I've been, let's talk about why you haven't been in church in a while. Let them share their reasons for a long time. Listen, and then possibly use one of these as points of engagement. Just invite them, well, why don't we just open our Bible really quick and just take a look at something with me, would you? And then you can work through these and kind of ask these same kinds of questions that I have here. This is why I wrote this, to give me kind of a devotional approach to helping people engage the scripture and see where they're at and what God's word says. So let's just read this together. Um, somebody want to read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right. Now, I just want you to pretend that uh, we are having this conversation. I'm just having this asking you these questions, and so don't answer, don't just nod along like saying, yeah, that's a good one, pastor. Just treat it as though you're honestly trying to answer these questions posed to you. So, um, in those verses that we just read, Jesus says, do this. When he says, do this, what do you think Jesus means in verse 24 and 25 there? He means do it. <laughs> he didn't drink it. Do this. Eat, take the bread, eat it. Take the cup, drink it. It's a pretty straightforward statement. Do it. Now, uh, in verse 26, what else are we doing? What does Paul say we're doing when we eat the Lord's Supper? Proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaiming, like saying it to ourselves, to other people. And from, um, do you get the sense reading that? That Paul thinks that proclaiming the Lord's death is something we should want to do fairly regularly. Let's uh, move to a different tack. What does Jesus say the cup of wine is in verse 25? His blood. Okay, it's, it's his blood and specifically the new covenant in my blood, right? So uh, in the cup, Paul is saying that this cup, this wine, this blood is actually the new covenant that God cuts, makes with us, right? Matthew, of course, when he's talking about, if we, we could go to the Matthew uh, institution where he talks about what this new covenant is, where Matthew quotes, Jesus is saying, for, given for you for the remission of your sins. In other words, Paul is saying that this cup, when you're doing this, is 
Jesus offering you the new covenant he created by his blood, which is forgiveness of sins. Sounds like Paul is saying that when you do this, you're both proclaiming the Lord, and by the way, he says you should do this. (laughs) But when you do it, you're proclaiming the Lord's death, and you're receiving this whole new covenant of forgiveness in your sins. Pretty crazy stuff, huh? (laughs) What is scripture here telling us about what happens when we receive the Lord's Supper, therefore? What happens to us? It says you pro- proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, you you believe that Jesus will come again, that, you know, and that he did die for the re- remission or for everyone's sins. Sure. So on one hand, you're kind of expressing your faith about what he believes, right? what you believe, right? What else is going on there? If we're, especially if, we're think, if Paul is saying that this cup is a new covenant in his blood, what happens to you when you drink it? You, you proclaim his death, so you, you express your faith, you, you're kind of saying it to others, um, bolstering it in yourself, but what else are you getting here? Aren't you binding yourself to God? Well, in a very real sense, God is binding himself to you. Yeah, yeah exactly. He's forgiving your sins. He's cutting this new covenant with you while you're drinking the blood, reaffirming the covenant with you as you take this cup. It's what it sounds a whole lot like anyway, right? Now, um, having read just this short bit and those very basic questions we talked about, do this, um, as often as you do this, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do you think, therefore, from what the scripture is saying, that Paul wants to give the impression that it's important to take part of the Lord's Supper. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It would be hard to see how that wouldn't be the necessary implication. And do do you seem to think that uh, Paul is even implying that this is something we should do somewhat often? Why do you think Paul is suggesting that? That we should do this, that it's important that we do it and that we do it often? We sin often, so we need forgiveness. We need our slate wiped clean every day. <laughs> well, uh, on the one hand, there is, there is literally in the statement itself, <laughs> as often as you do this, although I think that might actually be in uh, Matthew, but nonetheless, the very point is, Paul is speaking to a congregation that does this often, implying how important it is, as though they should continue to do it often and take it even more seriously, Right? So what do you suppose that should say about any given Christian's participation in the Lord's Supper? Do you think Lord's Supper in Paul's mind, not really a big deal whether a Christian does it or not? In Paul's mind, from what you just read. It's a very good deal. Exactly. It's just so obvious that Paul thinks that this is important. He even takes the time to address specifically this to a congregation who's falling down on it. Which goes to another question. Now, if you're dealing with somebody, if you flip the page over, who's, I, I use the word scorn, that is to say, they're, more, they're kind of in the boat of, I, I just have more important things going on. I just don't think the Lord's Supper is that important for me to take. Um, another follow-up question you might ask is, so what do you think people are doing when they, they're Christian, yet they choose to stay away from the Lord's Supper? Do you think, or put it even more simply, what do you think God thinks about that? 
if we can assume what Paul is saying is an accurate representation of God's mind. Like they're turning their back on him? Like they're just turning their back on something that Christ has positively commanded. Do this. And turning their back on something that Christ thinks is very important to promise and offer you. His body, his blood, his covenant. It sounds a whole lot like you're turning your back on Christ. Or at the very least turning his back on a good number of his commands and his promises. And there's only one word for that in Scripture. Sin. Let's turn to Matthew 26, 26 through 28, sticking with the Lord's Supper here. And by the way, um, when you're asking these questions, you don't even need to add extra interpretations to it the way I am, if you were ever to do this. I think, honestly, normally, I'm adding extra explanations because we're in a Bible study environment. Um, I think normally it's helpful when you're dealing with people who uh, you're trying to help see the problem. It's best if you don't have to explain to them the problem, but through your questions, help them state the problem. You I mean, sometimes you just have to be blunt and tell them, well, this is what it says. This is what you're doing, because clearly you're not seeing it. But by and large, uh, notice how these questions are kind of phrased to make them give the obvious answers. Well, obviously, Scripture is saying this. Well, I guess uh, if that's what Scripture says and somebody still turns their back on it, well, what's, what's the obvious logical consequence there? Let them say it. And then say, so why are you staying away? Um, anyway, Matthew 26, 26 through 28, we can keep pressing with the Lord's Supper issue. Um, somebody want to read that for us, just those couple of verses. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 26. Let's just do the same kind of very straightforward questions. And again... I don't think it's helpful to get into really deep theology necessarily with people who are in this because chances are, if they haven't been to church in a very long time, they're not particularly well indoctrinated into finer points of theology. Keep it straight. Keep it simple. And the straight, simple answers give us very clear and profound answers to the questions we're dealing with already. So, verse 26, what does Jesus say the bread is? His body. His body. Okay, so in the Lord's Supper, sounds like Jesus is saying, here's my body, my actual body of Jesus. Verse 28, what does Jesus say is in the cup? His blood. Jesus says here, in other words, in the Lord's Supper, you are coming to encounter my body and my blood. Things very central to me, you are encountering my presence. So, uh, well, I already answered the question for you. This was going to be the follow-up question. But what are you encountering when you share the Lord's Supper? You are encountering the body and blood of Jesus. Jesus himself. Now, moving on to a different track. Why is this blood of the new covenant given to us according to verse 28? We already talked about this in the First Corinthians thing a little bit. But it's good to point out that this is not just one place in Scripture. It talks this way. For the forgiveness of sins. Right. The forgiveness of of sins. It actually forgives us. So why do you think, from what we've just read, that Christians should want to take the Lord's Supper, should actually desire it? To get that forgiveness. Right, because there's Jesus there 
giving us forgiveness. Two big things. If I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, the one who has given himself for my sake, who created me, who I am going to spend eternity with, chances are pretty good I'll want to go meet him where he's available. And chances are also good I'll really want to hear those words from him. I forgive you. Having read this, again, we'll just follow up with the same question from 1 Corinthians. Do you think that it sounds like Jesus would think it's important for us to take the Lord's Supper and to do so regularly? He wouldn't have said that if it wasn't. Seems like, right? And then again, if you're uh, dealing with somebody who obviously has a low um, esteem for these things, then you can simply ask the question, okay, so given what we've just talked about, the answers that you yourself have just given me from the scriptures, why do you continue to stay away from the Lord's Supper? And let them give you their reasons. And let them see if it sounds in their own ears when they say it out loud, (coughs) right next to what they just heard Jesus say, (coughs) if it's a very compelling reason. And that will tell you a whole lot about where their heart is, by the way. And more importantly, it will tell them a whole lot about where their heart really is. So let's move away from the Lord's Supper. Let's move to, generally speaking, commands and promises that God has regarding um, Christians congregating together to worship. Let's go to pastor's favorite verse to quote when we, all pastor's favorite verses to quote when they're dealing with these, uh, with people who, don't believe it's necessary to gather to worship. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 27. Somebody want to read those for me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us come <coughs> to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilt from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's far enough there. Thank you very much. All right, so... Looking, I'll just work through some questions again. Very simple questions. Not looking for big, long answers, but if you want to give one, go for it. Verse 19 through 20. What is it that the scriptures say we have the confidence to do thanks to Christ's sacrifice? Enter the most holy place. We are, have the confidence to enter the most holy place. By the way, what do you think the most holy place is? The way to God. The presence of God himself, the most holy place in the temple. Um, This was just some historical background for your purposes, but it's a good enough answer to say most holy place means the presence of God himself. Um, But Hebrews is referring to the temple worship, where the temple was divided into several sections. There was uh, the outer court, the holy place, and at the very back, where only the high priest could go, only on very special occasions, 
the most holy place where uh, back before it was lost, the Ark of the Covenant was, and so on and so forth. But this is the, the hot spot, you might say, of God's presence. And all, no one could go into the, holy, the most holy place in the temple except the high priest after going through a whole rigmarole of self-purification on very specific days. If you tried to do it without that, the threat was God's presence would just wipe you out. So uh, the promise here is because of the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made to atone for our sins, we are now pure enough and worthy to draw into the presence of God himself without fear of being destroyed by him. Big blessing. But again, for purposes of explaining this to someone, you don't have to go into that big. You could just say the most holy place is the presence of God. So we have the confidence to draw near to God through the blood of Jesus. All right, verse 21 through 24. What are some things we are told to do because we have Christ's forgiveness? Notice, not to earn Christ's forgiveness, but because we have Christ's forgiveness. Christ has forgiven you. That's established. So what, therefore, are we told to do in verse 21 through 24? Just some instances. Draw near to God. Okay, one, though. Let us draw near. Since you can... Do it. <laughs> Draw near to him. Anything else? Full assurance that we are cleansed. Okay, so have the full assurance that you are cleansed. Um, don't be doubtful about it. Be confident. You are cleansed. Worthy, clean. Anything else besides, uh, those are two good ones. I'm not, there's not one specific I'm looking for. There's just several things here we're told to do that are important. Draw near to God. Have full assurance. What about uh, verse 23? Anything there? Hold to hope. Hold unswervingly to the hope. Don't get distracted by other things. Hold to that hope. What about 25? Anything there? Yeah, to meet together. Right. Don't give up meeting together. In other words, to put it positively, continue to meet together. For what purpose, by the way, are we supposed to be meeting together? Encourage one to encourage one another. So there are, uh, there's one very obvious correlation here. Paul's encouragement to the people who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ is because you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, keep meeting together. And in fact, he puts it in more strong terms of don't stop meeting together like some are in the habit of doing. Rather, keep meeting together in order to encourage one another in your hope, in your assurance, in drawing near to God. I like the last part of that verse. All the more as you see the day approaching. For sure. <laughs> Paul is not, uh, I mean, fact is, it's not like we're going to interminably be living here below and can spend all of our time doing whatever with, no, with nothing else ever interrupting it. Christ is coming again, and every day that passes, that day is coming closer. We don't know how long it's going to be, but the point Paul is making is, when you get closer to a destination, you don't stop, you don't get less excited to get there. You get more excited. So the closer you get, be all the more fervent in your hope. Be all the more unswerving. Meet all the more faithfully together to encourage one another, precisely because the end is coming closer. So what is one of the big reasons, well, we already said that, one of the big reasons for meeting together, according to Paul, was to encourage one another. 
to help out other people. Now, um, what presumably, therefore, are we missing out on when we neglect to meet together? We're missing out on this encouragement to hope, to confidence, to drawing near to God's presence. And uh, also to uh, being encouraged to, toward love and good deeds, which is in verse 24. Let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. By the way, since I don't uh, have this question in here, have you noticed how this isn't Paul just talking about you and Jesus here? He starts with you and Jesus. Because you have been cleansed by his blood, what does that immediately lead to? Now meet with others. Spur each other up. As though we, Paul assumes a very good blessing of being having this confidence to draw near to God is that we can now help each other out and be helped by others. And you miss out on all that when you neglect to worship. I see that because with, with the pandemic and, you know, we shut down for a couple of months, it's like, man, you know, we were talking like, man, we can't wait to get back to church. Right. Well, at least a lot of people were. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people were, but, you know, it's, it's like, you know, when Jerry was here, it's like, man, we couldn't wait mm-hmm. to get back to church. It's, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and you just don't feel right. I mean, you know, we watched it, but still, it's not the same as as being here because you are encouraged when you're here. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it's just right, both in and outside the worship service itself. I mean, a lot of the converse. I'm sure you find a lot of encouragement just from the conversations that happen around the worship service, um, before and after. I'm gonna, I need, I'll need to come back to something that you brought up when you were saying that. But let's continue to go through. So does Paul, what Paul say in verse 24 and uh, 25, I should say, I meant to say 25, but you could say both of those. 24 and 25, does that sound like a recommendation, like good advice, or more like a command? How does it <laughs> sound like Paul means this? It sounds more like a command. Yeah. It sounds a lot more like a do this rather than, you know, it might be a good idea if, Advice in the Bible, you can take or leave. It's advice. Commands? Not so much. So, uh, again, this is not questions I would ask you guys, because uh, obviously you're not in this particular boat, but would want some follow-up questions then. Bring the point, the questions you've had them say, the answers to, fairly simple answers. So would you say you've been neglecting to meet together? Have them apply the scripture to themselves. Just ask Would you say that you're one of those people who's been neglecting to meet together? And if so, what are you missing out on, according to Paul? All of those things that we just talked about is presumably the answer they'll come. Um, And then, again, if you're dealing with somebody who's just confused and comes to a good place there, you can stop the question. You don't need to follow up with this question where I have these if-scorn things. This is, again, if they're obviously still in this, it's just not that important, or, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but come on. You can't expect me to give up A, B, or C, or you can't expect this or this or this. Just ask, okay, well, what do you think Paul would say or write to you, given your continued neglect of meeting together? And how would you respond to what you think Paul would say to you? Just imagine, you're here with Paul. What would Paul say to you? And what would you say back to Paul? (laughs) You see what we're trying to do here. Help them come face to face with the issues. 
and help them, if they're going to be any kind of honest with the scriptures and honest with themselves, come to assert where they actually are, recognize it, and confess it, frankly. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12 through 27. 12, 12 through 27. This is a longer stint. Somebody want to read, um, we'll say 12 to 20, and then somebody else want to read 21 through 27. Body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. <clears throat> but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that, it, that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. All right, so Paul is writing to these congregations out in Corinth um, because there had been some fighting between the members. And some people were acting like they were more important than others because they had bigger spiritual gifts. Um, some were speaking in tongues, some were being able to prophesy, some were able to do healings, and others weren't. And so they said, we're the really Christian important parts here. You other guys, we don't need you. So even though Paul is right into that specific circumstance, let's ask a few questions here. What does Paul say about us Christians in verse 12? And in verse 27. They're one body. Right. We are one body. We are all part of one body. Now, every congregation has people in it. And this is something you could say if the problem is more kind of like a, a reconciliation issue, where they feel like they're ostracized by the congregation. They feel, or maybe because they actually have been. Who knows? But uh, you all, this isn't all just law, law, law. You're sinning, you're sinning, you're sinning. I hope you've noticed as we've gone through this, a lot of this has been, look at what Christ is promising here. Look at what you're missing out on. Not just, this is the command, do it. This is the promise. Hunger for it. Uh, but this is also to say, sometimes the sins of others against us have caused um, us to be estranged from the congregation. And a question you could ask in that vein to that kind of person is, everyone, every congregation does have people in it who don't feel like they're important as the other people. Either because they're made by the other people to feel that way, or they're just convinced themselves of this. Maybe they feel completely out of the loop. But according to verses 14 through 20, are they really unimportant? No. Every single part. 
even the ones that look like it's for a humbler purpose, is important. That's Paul's entire point here to the Corinthians and to the people in our congregations who feel that way. You are not unimportant. And in fact, if the rest of the congregation is making you doing stuff to make you feel that way, they're the ones with the problem who need to repent, for sure. But don't think that you aren't important and that you aren't part of the congregation. Because, after all, does Christ have a place for those people in his body? Absolutely. Verse 21 through 26, Paul is talking specifically about members of the congregation who look down on others and act like they don't need those others. Are the, is that right to you? Is it okay for those Christians to look down on the other people in their congregation? Not at all, obviously. Are they really better Christians who don't need the others? Most certainly not. So again, we can brought out, yes, there may be sins going on in the congregation, and we, we do need to deal with those. But look at 21 through 26 again. What if I act like this? What if I say something like this? I have Christ. I have faith. So I don't need these other Christians. Is that really any different than being an I and saying to the foot, I don't need you? It's the exact same thing, isn't it? So do you, if you're dealing with somebody who still doesn't seem to think, see the, connect the dots here, do you really think that you don't need other Christians or a congregation? You don't know what you'll get as an answer. Let's just say that right off the bat. Never be surprised by the answers people come up with. But if they're being any kind of honest, they'll see the dots here connect and say, they might say, I don't need the congregation per se, but I do need other Christians. They might try to wiggle out like that way. Sure, I need other Christians, but I have other Christians in my life. I don't need to be part of a congregation. That we can deal back with going to the sacraments itself, with um, meeting together regularly with the actual Christians who God has put in your life, and not just picking and choosing which Christians you think are most appropriate to deal with. But uh, point being, it should be sufficient to at least start to drive the point home. You do need these people. Again, you can go right to, well, what do you think Paul would say about your present attitude toward being part of the body of Christ? And let them put words in Paul's mouth. See what kinds of words they are, and if they have any kind of coherence with what Paul actually says. We'll finish this uh, walk through this next week, and we'll also do a little uh, conclusion kind of stuff where we draw the points home to these various things. All right, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.